This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome to our latest episode of the Nevers Podcast. Unfortunately, both Laura and Gerard couldn't make it this week, but thankfully I'm thrilled to be joined once again by Tanisha, making us the dynamic duo for today's show. Ahoy, Tanisha. Hello, hello. Uh, Today we are discussing episode eight of The Nevers, and as always, we encourage our listeners to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, and remember to follow us on social media for updates and sneak peeks. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, at HBO The Nevers and Twitter at HBO The Nevers and The Nevers Podcast, which is podcast without the A. If you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to email us at the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. All right, before we jump in and start discussing this, this week's episode, let's recap the previous episode. Would you do the honors, Tanisha? Sure. So, previously on the Nevers, Edmund Haig receives numerous calls on his rotary phone following the attack, while Penance and Bonfire unearth the remains of a mechanical soldier, and Amalia explores Lord Mason's estate. Muddy informs the police chief that Malady is still alive, but is warned of public humiliation if he discloses the information. Meanwhile, earthquakes shake London, and Amalia suspects they signify the emergence of the aliens hidden beneath the city. That's a good one. But moving on to this week's episode, Lavinia locks down the orphanage and confronts Amalia, who has broken into a mental institute to steal Dr. Haig's files. Cousins heals Amalia's wounds and they kiss, but he stops before things can go any further. Malady threatens to kill Dr. Haig and Lucy shatters the orb holding the alien, causing an earthquake that topples buildings. As Amalia and Penance try to reach the cave, Lucy sees a baby alien creature, but Lavinia orders her to kill it. This episode was written by Zoe Dennis, Rami Park, and Ira Parker, and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. Uh, what were your brief thoughts on this episode? Like, plus, minus, what do you think? I liked it a lot better than episode 7. I'm not going to lie. I think that we were able to progress the story a little bit better this time. There was less flashbacks, which was, for me, a plus. Um, and I think I think we're moving things along pretty steadily this episode, which I liked a lot more than, than last episode. Last episode was a little all over the place. So I'll give that their starter episode. You know, you can you can struggle in your starter episode, but I think we're, we're smoothing in a little bit easier now okay here's the thing what did you think what did you <laughs> what did you think so as i sat down to kind of look over our script for this week's episode and sort of think back on episode eight i watched it when i watched episode seven and nine just before we recorded our video on episode seven and i realized sitting down i don't remember a fracking thing that happened this episode <laughs> yeah I was it not memorable it, but- See, here's the thing. Like, here's why I'm, I'm going to explain why that's not my fault, even though it totally is. I watched it like a week ago. I should be able to remember what happened. It should have been memorable enough that at least parts of it have stuck with me. But it was just, I felt it was just such a bland episode that even though we're seven days on, I've basically forgotten 90% of what happened. Like, that's not... Ask me, you know, ask me to discuss... 
shindig, the body, man <laughs> on the street. I'm in. I'll dive right in. I'll ha- I have comments. Believe me, you know, long-term listeners will know I have comments when it comes to like the classic Whedonverse shows. But, I mean, somehow we're a week out and, yeah, I just, I don't really remember what happened this week. I mean, seeing as I did watch it recently, I can also agree. I think the most memorable moments of this episode was probably the last, like, 15 minutes. Um, and then the rest of it was kind of just like, it was there and it happened. So I do, yeah. I do understand a little bit. <laughs> I would also add a second slightly weak excuse as to why it's not my fault. Like, I realised that I hadn't watched it about 90 minutes ago. And I I could have sat down and watched more. Like I could have I could have rewatched it just to kind of set it was fresh in my memory. But honestly, I just I felt absolutely no desire to watch this episode again. Like I, I know for a fact after I'm done watching this back half of the season, I am never gonna touch this series again. Unless really? the last few episodes are spectacular. Mm-hmm. Just these the, this back six. No, they they are not memorable. They are, I don't I don't feel like I need to dive in and kind of see if I've missed anything because even the things I did see I don't really give a damn about yeah I'm not gonna lie like you could tell for sure in the first half of like part one every episode you were you're waiting for the next week for like the next release and you were excited for it and you wanted to know like how the story was gonna go and then this half you're kind of just like all right, like we'll just we'll we'll keep going with the story and just to like see how it ends and finish it. And maybe I feel a little bit that way because I know we're not going to get a season two, so like I know it can't be better than what we have like right now. And I know that like you know this is all they really had to like redeem themselves, like because you know there are shows where you have bad seasons and then you oh, yeah. you you do better like in your next one. So if this is like the worst second half, then you're like okay, well maybe. Maybe we'll 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 do better in the other half, but we're not going to get that. We, we this is all we have like four episodes left, wishing for the best. You know, this is your all or nothing moment, and it's Ex- it's really looking to be nothing. Exactly. So I'm I'm really hoping the next couple of episodes get better. I mean, this could be it for me. If you've watched like any of the the new Disney like Marvel shows, the first couple episodes it's like six or eight episodes, but the first half is always like super boring to me, and then the second half is like when things really like get more intense and more like. So I'm hoping that that's what happens in this. Fingers crossed. Well, actually, it's it's interesting that you mentioned kind of comparing to the Marvel because. I didn't realise recently, after finishing The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. like, all the new kind of Marvel and Star Wars shows, I'll watch them and I'll join them while they're on, and then I'll just completely forget about it. Like, I've not revisited a single Marvel or Star Wars show that has yeah. been dropped on Disney+. Plus. Like, I, I've watched them all, and yeah, I've enjoyed them, but they're all just, like, they're, they're McDonald's television. As soon as I'm finished with them, I just, I, you know, I throw away what's left, and I move on with my life. Yeah, I do have like I do have my top two Marvel new shows, and that would be um, the new Captain America and also uh, Moon Knight, where my top two. But like, I'm not gonna lie, WandaVision failed me, <laughs> and, yeah. and like even Loki, I haven't even started it. And the Marvels, it's just, it's a whole thing, it's a whole thing. <laughs> but it's good stuff. Let's jump back in and refresh my memory on what happened. So 
Lavinia attempted to touch the alien beneath the city, but it reacted violently. Meanwhile, riots break out outside Cousin's home, and a brick is thrown through his window. Amalia breaks into a mental hospital where she was once held to steal files on Dr. Haig, who is being held captive by Malady in a basement. After returning from her mission, Amalia is shocked to find Cousins and his family asleep in her office. She receives healing from Cousins before they kiss, but he stops anything further from happening. Lavinia arrives at the orphanage with news of Myrtle's accidental death, in heavy air quotes. She locks down the facility, pointing out to Amalia that she knows about her unauthorized break-in and escape from the hospital. As Amalia talks with Cousin's wife, she experiences flashbacks of Molly's life before Zephyr's control. Finally, Lavinia offers Lucy a cure for her powers, as Augustus spies on their conversation through a prison window. While Penance creates a device to track the mysterious calls that Amalia overheard at Dr. Haig's house, while Malady forces Haig to dig a large hole without explanation. Malady threatens Haig with a shard of glass, but ultimately decides not to kill him. Meanwhile, Cousins tends to Myrtle's injuries and reassures her that she did the right thing, but she leaves without saying a word. Elsewhere, Mundy visits Lucy in her cell, and she breaks free of her restraints, threatening to kill him unless she reveals Mary's killer. Mundy walks away, and Lucy escapes. Lord Masson suggests to a group of officials that the touched should be separated, but they reject his idea and remind him that his daughter's death has affected him personally. Amalia experiences more flashbacks and reacts by throwing a chair out of her window just like adults do. <laughs> this catches Cousin's attention. He confronts her and confesses his love, but cannot continue to deceive his wife and storms off. Amalia then goes to Penance's machine, which rings, but she doesn't hear anyone on the other end. Penance, however, sees a stream of energy emanating from the device and becomes fascinated by it until Amalia turns off the machine. During Mason's meeting with the Beggar King, where he asks for a favor, Lavinia takes Lucy to where the alien is being kept in an orb. Lucy uses her power to break the orb and Augustus secretly observes. Amalia has a vision of this and rushes to the cave with penance. The earthquake caused by the broken orb destroys buildings and causes Malady to scream while Mason remains calm. However, a girl's screams are heard from a locked room in Mason's house. Amalia and Penance are on their way to the cave when it collapses. Meanwhile, Lucy sees a baby alien and Lavinia orders her to kill it. So, let's dive in. Look at the big picture. How did the eighth episode advance the overarching story of the show? What significant developments did we see? Tanisha, what are your thoughts, your kind of more in-depth thoughts on the episode now? So I, I do think that we are moving things along for sure, specifically now that we have the orb broken. So we get to see like the Levi the Goliath like in full 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 form now, even as a baby. And you know, what Lucy's going to do is it, what Lavinia wants with it, or if she does really want it to be killed, like how that's going to move the story. Um, specifically, if Lucy like doesn't kill it, because remember like the whole parent um, themes we went on from last episode. So like maybe that'll take form, but instead it'll be like Lucy with the alien. So that'll be cool. Um, and then also we have whatever's happening with Melody and Haig and, you know, removing Haig's leadership or following with um Lavinia specifically since Lavinia is like going off on her own now making her own decisions on what to do with the orb 
Um, and also, everyone's making a lot of teams right now on what to do <laughs> <laughs> with things. So you have like Lord Mason and the Beggar King, and you have Lavinia with Lucy and Dr. Haig with Malady. So these all new pairings can really change the story going forward. Um, specifically, if Lord Mason really works with the Beggar King to get what he wants, how that's going to change the environment for the troubled. Um, especially if they start straying away from the little prison that they've made and that Lavinia has tried to keep them into. And then also if um, Malady and Haig, whatever Malady has planned right now, who knows like what's coming from them? Cause it, they didn't really explain it in this episode. What's going on. I did like their scenes together and we'll probably go into that a little bit more as this, this episode continues, but um, it's interesting to see what they're doing on top of everything. And then of course you have Amalia and Penance stuck in the cave. So we have like four groups going on that are changing the, changing the game. This is very much Never's take on the odd couple. Like there's these very bizarre little pairings they've set up. And I've got to say, I was, I'm very interested to see where Malady and Haig go because they were probably two of my favorite characters from the first half of the series. I really like, I think they're both amazing actors. I'd love to see what they can do bouncing off each other. Oh, that scene that they had with the shard was amazing. I thought the writing for that was like really good. It's great. I'm excited for that. Since I've previously recorded with you guys, I actually went away and watched the first kind of half of American Horror Story. Mm. I got a bit bored and sort of zoned out after, I want to say, Hotel. <laughs> but obviously, uh, you know, Edmund Haig is played by a friend of the podcast, Dennis O'Hare, mm. who is a mainstay in American Horror Story. And it's like, He's fantastic in so many, especially, especially Hotel. He was just an absolute scene stealer. It's quite funny watching, going from that and then watching this. And it's a very, very different character, but he is still just like amazing. Every scene he's in is good. Because it doesn't matter what else is going on, his performance you know is going to be phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And I think one thing I really liked about this episode um, compared to last episode and even like in the beginning of part one with his character specifically is we kind of like just saw like a crazed doctor, someone that like before we really got into his mommy issues, someone that, you know, had potential to be like a really good bad guy, um, like even on his own. Um, so I really liked the whole like fragility that we saw a bit of him today with like Malady and, you know, how, how the tables have turned with the two of them. Um, how before she was on like his receiving end of like being scared and afraid. And now she's created a new version of herself. She's no longer Sarah and she's Melody and she gets to take the reins a little bit. And now he's afraid and he doesn't know what's happening. And he doesn't even know if he's digging his own grave. And I thought that was just like amazing because they both played that so well. Um, but seeing him like shift in character a little bit more to like a more scared and like doesn't really know what's going on you can really see like he is a follower and not really a leader i thought that was that was cool they, they really kind of built up the whole uh frankenstein parable with his on parallel sorry with his first half arc yeah so yeah he was like he was the mad scientist working away in his lab creating all these monstrosities and now you know, a lot of people forget it's the happened in Frankenstein. The monster kind of fought back and it didn't end very well for old Vicky. Yeah. And now you know, we're seeing Edmund Haig. He's kind of now it's the tables have turned and he's very much at Malady's sort of 
sympathy, which is an emotion he is somewhat drip drawn out of her. So it's going to be yeah, very interesting to see where that little pairing goes because it is it works on so many levels, and you know, they are two. I think they are two of the stronger actors in the show. So anytime we get to see those two working together, I'm I'm all for it. And they they do really kind of overly imply that he is there digging his own grave. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But just the fact they're hammering that point in so hard guarantees that's not what's going on. Like, Malady is insane. Yeah. But she always has a plan. I I wouldn't particularly say she was cruel. No. She wouldn't, like, there's no point drawing it out, making him, she would just, if she she was going to kill him, she'd just freaking kill him and get it over with. I feel from, you know, after, like, the part, part one, when we found out, like, her whole disguise as the, the, the news reporter and everything like that, you can always tell that Malady may be crazy, but she always has, like, a plan at the end of it. Whether she's, whoever she's getting it from, if it's from, like, you know, the aliens or if it's from something that she's creating herself, she does say that she has her own mission. And so, she may be crazy, but she, she she's going to follow that mission in the end, regardless of her relationship with Hagen and, and what that really means. Um, so I don't I don't think she she's smarter than what we think, and, and I think she's going to play that a lot more. I just had a thought. What? You know, she's like she, we were talking last episode about um, who the other person is that's traveled back. What if it's Malady, but the transfer wasn't complete? So the, the the new person, whoever they are from the future, hasn't completely taken over Malady in the same way that Zephyr took over Amalia. Yes. It's just literally like she's literally got a voice in her head, but it's not her being crazy. It's literally a voice that's stuck in her head. That would make a lot more sense, especially specifically if Amalia is getting like her pot syndrome. She's getting her flashbacks to like her, 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 her meld with her last person. But if Malady isn't really getting that, but instead is like dealing with everything like mentally, that, that would make so much sense. That would make a lot of sense. Cause who is she, who is she the hearing she this mission? so unbalanced from? is because she's literally got two personalities fighting exactly. for control of the same body. Because for somebody who's so crazy, she does make really smart moves. She does make yeah. like, like I, I still can't, my favorite scene of part one is when she like rips off the, the mask and she's like prancing throughout the, the streets and her escape. I was like, that was freaking genius. And I was like, that there's was no good, way yeah. Malady herself would have made that decision specifically if you combine who she was as Sarah as well. So if you combine Sarah with the new melody now, and then if she does have another person that's like speaking to her, then she's like basically has three personalities she's working off of, but even her last personality as Sarah wouldn't have had her be that genius that she is Mm. now. So that would make sense. That would make sense. It it kind of, it tracks a little, Bit of a but like you'll see where I'm going. Um, you know, Dark Knights, Nolan movie. No. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, there's a, a quite popular theory in that that the Joker is former Spec Ops. Okay. And that he was driven. Yeah, he was his. He kind of he's suffering from like severe PTSD from things he saw while he was being all Spec Ops and you know, ex- you know, kind of in depth there. Mm-hmm. And that's why A, he hates, you know, he wants to do all the stuff he did, and B, how he was able to pull off all the things he did. 
it would explain how Malady is capable with like that her whole plan with the electrocution that was next level oh for sure almost like you know a high-ranking military strategy so it's entirely possible they could be she's got like half a soldier embedded in her mind and that's how she's able to do all these kind of ridiculously in-depth tactical decisions because she's got you know years of experience in the military just doesn't actually have it oh that yeah yeah that would i like that theory <laughs> i really I, it's a great theory it's funny because you know before like this and like the, the thought of that my first thought was like maybe it is Lavinia like I don't want it to be Lavinia but her need to to kill like the Galanti so bad I'm just like why what is the reason for you would think if she was somebody that like it was in this terrible accident she had this disability and you found this magical orb in a cave you'd want to use it to maybe heal yourself or to make changes or get more power but instead she's like destroy 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 so i'm like what is her relationship with it that she is just so destined to want to destroy something like this but i also feel there is there was a moment um this episode where she she like tries to get out of the chair and like reach up and, and touch the orb and like the galanthi swims towards her but like doesn't accept her her offering or whatever i feel like she's like jealous of it and jealous of the touched a little bit because of it because when lucy went and touched the orb lucy kind of looked like she had like an outer body experience um like like the galanthian was just like resonating with her and that like part of it was within her where um lavinia didn't get that so i feel like she she doesn't like the relationship that, you know, the touch have all these powers and the touch can do all this. And then she's stuck in her chair, powerless, and just wants to destroy it altogether. But what she's doing is just, it's so dangerous because now all of, like, the city is falling apart now. There, there, yeah. there are going to be repercussions from oh, yeah. what's happened, for sure. And whether that falls on Lucy and the touched or whether that falls on Lavinia and her, her backdoor plans, well, like, we'll never know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to fall on Lavinia, is it? I mean, like, but rich lady, Augie, upper class. She'll she'll be fine. Augie saw her though. That's her own brother, and he saw that she is now like the mastermind of everything. And seeing as he is also a touched person, he's no longer on her side. But he's also a coward. That is true. He's gotten bolder. <laughs> he's gotten bolder. True, and maybe maybe this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Maybe this is gonna, you know, push him into action, but. I do, I do think though, yeah, but I do think like with everything that's happening now, now that the orb has been destroyed and like these earthquakes have made such moves that like things are crumbling where they are and like the touched are being physically, like Malady is having a physical reaction from it. Um, you know, even the monster in Lord Mason's basement, which is quotes maybe his daughter yeah (laughs) so clearly it's his daughter um so you know there are like physical reactions that are happening because of the birth so who knows what's going to happen to the touch now if it's going to if their powers are going to become stronger because of it or worse or um or or whatever but now that you know buildings are literally being crushed and people are dying i feel like lord mason now has uh like a stepping stone to be like see 
we didn't take care of the touched. This is what happened. Now we really do have to like rein them in and then imprison them. And, and like the other general said, you go from imprisonment to in the gallows. So who knows how that storyline is going to go. We don't have a lot of episodes to really, really push it. But yeah. um, it, but it'll I mean, be If you were, you know, a peer of the realm and you did have an axe to grind against a particular subset of the population and you did have an event like this handed to you on a fucking silver platter i mean given everything we know of lord masson this is everything he's ever wanted exactly much exactly so i I can't see this ending well for anyone except possibly him and of course my boy the beggar king who i love because i just love that actor yeah yeah that that, their scene was also a, a very good one i was a big fan of that I was I was happy to see him again. I was happy. I didn't. I don't think we got enough of him last uh, first part. So I'm I'm glad that he's going to be taking uh, more initiative. And you know, he only goes to whoever fills his pocket the most. So if if Lord Mason's not going to follow in on this supposed favor that he's asking for, which I really want to know what he's really like looking for with that, um, then you know, whoever's next. If if the touched have a bigger wallet, maybe he'll help them. Um, in some form like he has in the past. Uh, It's always interesting to think about like Lord Mason's take on everything and and why he's so determined, seeing as his daughter is literally fighting in the basement um, as a touched monster. And he's just like... That, that's what spurred him on maybe like i mean he was clear like you know clear he's a father and daughter you know, it's a strong connection he really loved his child yeah and then she was touched in air quotes by this you know the mysterious force of the, of the, of the, he doesn't know does lord Masson know about the galanthi no no because yeah, he, he couldn't see anything an and he just yeah the yeah. event so that he just sees his daughter turn into possibly some kind of actual monster i mean we know from Fishboy ford last season that it can have physical changes. Yeah. So maybe he see he sees his beautiful daughter turned into a fish monster or a you know wolf creature, and that's why he's so. He, maybe he thinks that kind of killing all of them will bring her back or some dumb shit like that. He he would make he would make plans about that. <laughs> he, I don't know. It just it doesn't make sense to me because he would think like as a father he'd be like, okay, like let's research. I would think that he would join Lavinia to to really like find out what's going on and if he could save his daughter but instead he's like hush hush about it and pretends that she's dead and and, like goes along with his life so it's weird um i did like his scene with hugo this episode as well though and I, i honestly forgot about hugo's father and that whole i don't know why they keep bringing up hugo's father and like the importance of his father but it seems like a plot that they want to go forward with that i don't understand um but i feel like his father has been brought up so many times in like part one and in part two that it just doesn't it, doesn't it has sense. certain element has kind of certain flavors of uh what's it called Chekhov's gun to it it's yeah. like they brought his father up entirely too many times for his father not to be a major plot point moving forwards and kind of going by the obvious option i'm guessing his father is considering his father is a peer of lord mass and i'm guessing they're around the same age yeah so old guy only got one son who's a bit of a crazy you know posh boy yeah club owner mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit of a hugo swan and there's no <laughs> other way to sum the character up than that 
Hugo Swan is extremely Hugo Swan. Exactly, and exactly, and he pulls it off so well. <laughs> yeah, like he's, he's one of like, yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant character. He's adding him to any scene will only improve the scene. I really want a scene of Hugo, the Beggar King, and Edmund Haig. I don't know what they're discussing, but it would be an amazing scene. It would probably be, you know, it would probably be. Hugo asking the beggar king to protect his his club and then Haig asking for you know a couple of because he said his funding is a little like off ever since the whole situation that happened with Melody so it'd be like Haig would be like funding his operation a little bit more if he could get a couple touched here and there to like work on the way he has already. But I don't know. I need more Beggar King this yep. part two. Anyway, so wherever he wants to come in and whoever he wants to work with would be great. Um, what else did you see this episode? Any other developments or, or do you think we touched on a little bit of everything? I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really remember any real kind of big character moments other than those we've mentioned. Uh, Monday is great. I want a lot more Mundy. We're he lo- really not lo- getting a lot of him at all this. No. But it looks like they're setting up quite a good arc for him. Like, he was sort of the big man in charge, and he's had quite the fall from grace. I'm hoping that's going to push him more toward the touched, since obviously with his uh, connections with Mary, kind of, you know, he, he was already favourable towards them, and now hopefully being abandoned by his former colleagues that will push him more towards them because I think he could be like their kind of ace up the sleeve against the likes of Lord Masson and the Beggar Kings. I mean, as you mentioned, the Beggar King has just asked for this somewhat nebulous favour from Lord Masson and given everything we know about the Beggar King and everything we know about Masson and his levels of power and influence... There is very little the Beggar King could ask for from him that would end well for anyone else. Exactly. But it'll, <laughs> it'll be pretty interesting to see how that's going to go because it seems like right now it's setting up for Mundy versus Lord Mason because whatever Lucy told him about Mary and his like roundtable nights that might have set up for, for Mary's death. Or if he believes that Mary's death was set up by whatever Lucy gave him about Lord Mason, then it'll be like the two of them. But if Lord Mason has the Beggar King on his side, then he's going to have to tap into his connections with the Touched. So it'll be like Mundy and the Touched versus the Beggar King and Lord Mason and like his his knights and then wherever everyone else fits into it, like Malady and Dr. Haig and so and so. I think in any plot arc you can plan out, if you're wondering where Malady fits in, it's always the agent of chaos. Mm-hmm. She is. Like, the thing is, we've got Haig, who's kind of science guy. We've got the Beggar King, who's the spider behind the web. We've got Lord Masson, who is white privilege in a hat. Yeah. We have all these characters all doing their planning. You know, even Lavinia is kind of working behind the scenes using her influence. They're all planners. They're all schemers so you need someone that just can't be planned for can't be schemed around just to stop it from being a bunch of people talking in rooms to each other we need someone that can just 
get in and make sure any plan goes wrong in a convenient-for-the-plot way. Oh, jumping back slightly, uh, the mention of Lord Matton and his knights. Are you aware of the Greater Whedonverse theory? No, what is it? That it basically, it's this theory, I think we, we used to have an article on it. Well, no, I, I plan to write an article on it, but it, basically it's this kind of framework that stitches together, like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse, um, Cabin in the Woods, and kind of merges them all into one coherent, in heavy air quotes, plot. Really? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I, we don't really have time to go into it now, but I'll try and find the old thing and I'll show it to you. But essentially, it very much feels to me like the Nevers' connection to that theory is now set because Lord Masson and his round table mm. are clear precursors to the Watchers' Council. Mm. So, like, the Watchers' Council, all right, all right you know, so they, they see all this nonsense with the touched player, like, oh, these, these freaking future alien wizards we can't be dealing with this nonsense <laughs> we need somewhere to stop them so they find the slayer and they they train up the slayer yeah and they use her to fight the monsters the that comes after that point yeah there are there, there are connections i yeah <laughs> i mean it would be interesting to see if he really is connecting all of his his projects but would he be even be able to accomplish it in the second half, seeing as he is not as involved as he was in the first part? Okay. So as we've been analyzing the characters and their motivations, it's clear that they're all grappling with larger themes and symbols that permeate the show. Can we take a deeper dive into the themes and symbolism that we've noticed throughout the eighth episode? And the never has the nevers has never shied away from exploring complex themes in the episode eight was no exception. From the struggles for power and control to the themes of identity and redemption, this episode had a lot to unpack. What are your initial thoughts on the themes explored in this episode? I mean, the one obvious one we really can't pass up, and it was like as we talk about more, I'm remembering parts of the episode, and this was definitely one of my favorite moments. We've got Lucy, you know, the eternal mother with no child, who lost her kid because of using her powers, using her powers to break the egg and then, like, rescuing the child. Like, the play there is obvious and it was very well. Like, freaking uh, Elizabeth Barrington is such a fucking legend. And, like, with little to no dialogue, just that scene of the breaking of the egg and the rescuing of the Galanti was so perfectly done. And I feel like it should be taken note that even without her gloves on, she's holding the glanthy in her hand and nothing is happening. And Lavinia is sitting there like, kill it, kill it. But she, she can't. She's She finally gets to hold something in her hand and it's not dying. Do you really think she's going to intentionally kill it in her hands? There's no way. It's like having her baby in her hands once more. And it is technically a baby in her hands. So... I, that's why I don't think that Lavinia and Lucy's partnership that they've created right now for this moment is actually going to continue after this episode. I think that Lucy's probably going to go running with the baby. Amalia's and, and Penance are probably, once they get out of the cave, going to try to find her. Or maybe Lucy will join up with the Touched again to you know find the true meaning of what's going on with the Galanti baby. Who knows? But I, I do think that she's she's not going to kill it. And I think Lavinia is going to take that real hard. <laughs> there is a distinct chance that is the way it will go, yeah. Like, 
considering everything's worked with their powers and like there's there's literally less than zero there, there is more chance of me killing that galanthe than there is killing it. <laughs> she will find a way to escape i can't see her going straight to amalia and penance there's going to be some kind of hurdle for them all to cross before they can get together you know but lavinia is, is not going to... Yeah, I agree. Lavinia is going to take this very badly. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, you know, Lucy's decision to go back to, like, the orphanage and the troubled, right now, because the the orphanage is going through, like, a, a power shift with Bonfire Annie and Amalia, I also think that that might be a reason why Lucy won't go there, because... She doesn't really know Amalia's purpose when it comes to the Galanthi, because Amalia never really disclosed that in the time when Lucy was there, that she didn't really know everything that was going on. So we don't really know what Amalia's plans are to do next, because it was the goal was to protect the Galanthi, and now the Galanthi is out of the sack. So it's like, what's the next steps? You can't really raise it in the orphanage when Lavinia's been watching over the orphanage and and now Augie also knows about Lavinia so it kind of has to go into like a whole hiding situation and Lucy's probably the best person to do that right now I mean she's been hiding pretty well before when she went on the run and technically was hiding in the orphanage but still um, but that whole the whole power shift between Bonfire Annie and Amalia right now is very like the orphanage is unstable because you have Bonfire Annie taking care of everyone. And even when the riots were going on, Bonfire like confronted Amalia and was like, you have to get your shit together, basically. If you want anyone to be able to like survive here and pr- be protected here. So Lucy can't really bring the baby there. Because it's, no. not, it's not at the stage where they could do that. It's very possible that the hurdle they'll have to cross to reach that point will be some kind of awakening or realization for Amalia because right now Amalia is very much in a fractured state she needs to do something to get her shit together like I mean yeah we, we kind of we probably should have mentioned it a bit earlier but the scene with her and cousins they're kind of almost but not quite oh when he like professes his love for her and she's just like brushes it to the side <laughs> yeah it was I didn't like that scene I thought no part of that was played well but I did think it was a good moment for him, one of the very few he gets, is a very underutilized character. They need, he needs to be more than just the heel bot they go to to fix them up after missions. Because yeah. like, his stance in that whole situation was... I mean, no one's right in that situation. You're having an affair, you fucked up. Exactly. But his kind of stance on the whole thing was about as close to right as you can get. And it's, yeah, the way it all kind of played out felt a little flat to me. Like, I know Amalia's going through some shit right now that she wasn't really ready for the big emotional conversation, but I think that is laying the groundwork for her, for Amalia in possibly, I'd say, like, four or five to have the big emotional breakdown moments where she gets all this shit off her chest, probably to penance. Which is which is which is crazy because we're like we're basically doing it again from what we did from from part one. So she's she's going through that whole growth thing again and and 
now that she's lost the Galanthe, if she does lose the Galanthe with Lucy, she has to find a new purpose when it comes to finding it. And, you know, whatever the repercussions are now that the city is basically under rubble. So I don't know, but she's going stir crazy. She was going stir crazy in the orphanage, like when she was on lockdown. So for her to actually sit down and, and actually, you know, look at her issues, it's probably going to be penance that snaps yeah. her out of it. Penance or possibly malady. Yeah, those are the two that have the kind of key to the lock that is Amalia. But I, I don't know much have a distinct suspicion that even if everything plays out as well as it can with Lucy and the Galanthi, Amalia is still going to feel like she needs a new purpose. Yeah. Like, she's not the maternal type. She's not like, all right, now that the Galanthi's out, I'm going to raise it and keep it safe. No. No. That's, that's not, that's not her. That's, that's never been a Lucy, the parenting. That's a penance. Yeah. Even, like, Bonfire Annie at this point. Like, it'd be Yeah, actually, I, I could very much see her being the kind of reluctant leader that rises up like the flames. Exactly. To kind of become... the. Cause let's be fair here. There's maybe a 20% chance, maybe 30 if I'm being nice, <laughs> that Amalia makes it to the end of this finale alive. You don't think she's going to make it? No. She, she's got heroic sacrifice written all over her. Yeah. Even if... Let me, let me add a caveat... There's a very little chance Zephyr Will not make is it. going to make it to the end of this series alive. I have a distinct suspicion they're either going to kill, kill her off, Zephyr and Amalia, or she will sacrifice herself in some way to save the day, or they will save the future in such a way that Zephyr no longer needs to be here and will return to either move on to whatever's next or will go back to her body, mostly just because I want to have another episode of Claudia Black. I mean, that would make sense because I feel like, I don't want to say she has like suicidal ideation, but she has like since, yeah, she has like since, since she did meet the Galanthi, she's kind of been like, why did you leave me alive? You should have chosen somebody else. I wasn't the right leader for this. And she really isn't a leader. Like we've had multiple times this episode and last episode where they've kind of been like, like that scene. Not gonna lie, a good scene uh, this episode was the scene between Lavinia and Amalia when they're both in the orphanage and um, Lavinia is like, if you need orders to get your stuff together, here they are. And that is <laughs> to stay here, fix what happened to Myrtle, fix the like relationship that the city has against the touched and then go from there forget the Galanthi, like whatever you're doing. Cause you know, for a fact that Lavinia probably knows it was Amalia that set everything off. So Lavinia is keeping her eye on her. But at this point, Amalia is such at the seams. Like she's, she's like, I'm, I would, everything was easier when I was back at the asylum. And now Lavinia is like, get it together. Um, and if you, if you want to be a follower, if you want to be like someone that needs orders, here they are. However, you are in a position of leadership and you actually have to do that. And she even said something like, you need to grow up to the potential that people have seen from you or something like that. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a cheesy line. I didn't really like that. Yeah. And I was just like, well, everyone is was waiting for her potential, but that I still don't think she's that person to take it. Regardless of her, her character growth the rest of the season, I don't think she's going to be the one that's like 
bear hug in the orphanage. <laughs> um. <laughs> not, not a literally zero chance. Like, no. I, as you said, I think Annie has a far greater chance of becoming the leader that the orphanage deserves more than Amalia does. Yeah. Given the recurring theme of kind of eggs and hatching and rebirth, I can absolutely see either Amalia dying to kind of free, in air quotes, Zephyr and send her either to stay here or move on to where she goes. Yeah. Or kind of both of them dying to free themselves from this mess they've created. But I just, I can't or see... Or Zephyr could die and Amalia stays. Like if Zephyr yeah, dies, yeah, yeah. but like, like Amalia's body is still the same, but she just doesn't remember anything. Yeah, she just goes back to being who she was yeah. before, but possibly a more kind of like at peace, a more at peace version of herself. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, just, I, I can't see a happy ending where, or like a satisfying ending where Zephyr, to, for clarity's sake, stays in the orphanage and becomes like the leader like, of it or something. The, like the, the, yeah, yeah, the kind of quasi mom. It's just, it's, it's not. It would be massively out of character for her, and it would just—it would feel kind of not wrong, but it would feel—I would be disappointed if that's how it ended, unless they pull something ridiculously amazing. But based on what I've seen so far, that's that's out of their capabilities. Because you also have to think that Zephyr has been like a lone soldier since we met her. Like since we met her in the first part, she before like the Free Life found her or whatever, she was by herself, and when she she came into this new time frame she was also by herself she had sarah for a little bit betrayed sarah now she has penance and penance has been the only one that's like really kept her with the orphanage and and kept her like together so if anything happens to penance or if there's a shift between her and penance she really has no tether to the orphanage or even to the task and mission that she has because she's kind of over it at this point, and she doesn't think she can do it at this point. So... Not sure she can, to be honest. Exactly. So without penance, or without, like, someone to, like, guide her, she's kind of like Hague in that way, and she needs someone to, like, keep her in line, and and keep her, like, moral compass, and and kind of, like, (laughs) that kind of situation. So, I don't know. I, I don't think she'll be that leader that the orphanage needs, but now that we have a full baby on our hands, it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how her character shifts to, I have a vulnerable thing I have to co- like take care of, and who knows if the Galanti in this form is powerful enough to you know have the smarts and things that like an adult Galanti had before they yeah, sent them off. That would be a massive stretch if this like tiny baby alien was suddenly like, "Yes, I am powerful." I am and the Galanti, like, and I know what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, no, like this, the Galanti baby. We'll need to think of a new name for it that's shorter. <laughs> if GB. they are anything more than a plot device moving forward, then so- then someone has fucked up. Yeah, pardon my French. Like if they suddenly become like a a character a force within the show it's gonna feel very off to me like they are a macguffin they are a plot device that is all they should be moving forward they they, they need and should have very little agency with the possible exception of a kind of first slash last flight as the climax of the series to mirror the way the first episode finished 
with the Galantic. If the Galanti has its first flight and you know, goes away and we see all the lights going up towards it as everything is safe, fine. That could, if they do that well, that could, that could work. Anything other than that? And it just, no, it wouldn't sit with me at all. No. I feel like the only way we could see maybe like a mature version of it is if it connected with Myrtle like it did in part one. And they had that like scene where they do it's like it talks through Myrtle and, and it, all of that. But right now, because it was was birthed early, I feel like they're just going to use it like like you said, like a plot device. Um, so I don't think that Amalia is in that position where she could care for something like that until it's at a stage to grow. And she can barely care for herself. She's not really care for anything. Exactly. Else. But they, <laughs> at that sense, if we are thinking of this big, powerful being as now something that needs to like grow and get stronger to be able to push the touch or whatever, it basically means that the touched have lost their, their like big playing chip that they had before. Cause now it's, it's, it's too early. It's not ready to go out and, and they've lost their power that they had that they didn't even know that they needed before so it'll be interesting to see it's it's annoying because you know we talk about all these kind of the themes and the ideas and the possibilities of where they could go and we come up with these amazing theories then I just think three episodes (laughs) yeah there's no way we're touching on everything there's no way they can bring this to a satisfying conclusion in three episodes no I mean, I'm really, because you know how we were talking last episode about like penance and her shift and like whether she'll go evil and stuff. That whole scene where, where she can see the, the lights when Amalia is on the phone. I was like, oh, we're having a moment. She's like, you know, she's uh, like evolving in her, in her touched and she's like maybe getting her own character development a little bit more. And then the phone shuts off and then we lose it. So. One aspect of the show that can't be overlooked is the production and technical work that goes into each episode. So, with that said, let's move on to discussing the episode's production and technical aspects. Considering that we have had some reservations about the CGI in the previous episodes, do you think the quality has improved in this episode? What stood out to you both in terms of production and technical aspects? I would would just chip in straight away and say, that scene you just mentioned where Penance can see the glowy light stuff on the phone. Brilliant It was really scene. good. Really good. So good. Looked amazing. Her kind of performance with an interaction with the flowy lights. Spot on. I was like, this is the scene. This is what we need. And then it... Yeah, because... And what a surprise. It abruptly finished too soon. Because <laughs> honestly, when it comes to... When it comes to Penance, we haven't seen a lot of her power. You know, we saw like a few glimpses in part one, um, but she always mentions it, but we never really get to see it. So for us to see like that physical, like movement of electricity or, or whatever, um, that she generally sees, I thought it was, it was done really well. Who else did we, who what else did we, we got like a little bit of Malia's flashbacks and then they had like the whole like blue goo that was like, the fluid of um, the Galanti that we saw in that with like the eggs and stuff. That was cute. Yeah, the whole kind of egg cracking Galanti baby birth yeah, scene, for yeah. a better word. That all looked great. I thought, like, the, as, as, as we mentioned before, the, the gooey baby was kind of I didn't really 25% like it. gross, 75% adorable, I'm not, which is a pretty good ratio. It was cute, but I'm not going to lie, I was disappointed. 
<laughs> I was I was a little disappointed. I I wanted something more like I don't know, out of this world kind of thing. I felt like I was looking at um a uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there were definite cephalopod uh, inspirations in that character design. Yeah. It could definitely be like a plushie if the Nevers ever wanted to make merchandise. But I wanted something more stronger than that. I don't know. But maybe that just helps with like pushing the it's a fragile thing. Uh, well, that's the thing. Like, I wanted something a little bit more ethereal. Like, I didn't, I didn't want a squid baby. I wanted like an angel baby. Exactly. That looks a little like, I think if they wanted to really dial up the fragility i would be a hundred percent for that like make it look like it's made out of you know glass and wishes Mm -hmm. i think maybe they i I think maybe they did it the way that they they did to like again go back to that point like lucy holding a baby in her hand so they had to give her something more like of substance to to do that They, they needed to kind of tread the fine line between it's obviously an alien but we need to hit the symbolism of Lucy holding a baby. It needs to be recognizable. It needs to be close enough to a human baby yeah. that yeah. anyone watching the scene will get the obvious symbolism. It is a baby. But then <laughs> give it some tentacles so we know it's an alien. And to be fair, this is kind of the just birthed Galanthi. There is, they could always, if they wish, if they had more than three episodes to work with, go with a kind of larval state and later on have it kind of sprout some wings and become a more majestic ethereal looking creature i mean how fast do you think they'll do that in in like three episodes though like is it gonna grow like every every episode it's gonna grow like 500 years in in life <laughs> i really hope so but it won't i really do it's, it's very much gonna be you know, we're talking kind of grogu here it's 50 years old and he's still a little baby like this thing is going to be a squid for a long time yeah yeah any other production or technical aspects that you liked or didn't like of this episode the the light show and the squid baby were my two my two big hits i thought they both looked pretty good other than that it was it was very much a kind of character focused episode there was a lot of people in holes and dark rooms oh yeah wasn't really much space for fancy shtick yeah yeah i do like anytime i see bonfire annie's powers we saw a little bit of it this episode i was like oh great amazing it just it flows so well and the way that they do it when she like throws the fireballs and everything fabulous was- 10 out of 10 would watch a bonfire spinoff oh for sure for sure like how she got it what she did to get to malady all that stuff amazing like the fact that she was a sort of like she worked her way up through the criminal underworld before we ever met her yeah that's the show. Yeah. I, like, they, it was still happy with Michelle Neal and the character, she nails it. So, yeah, just all of that. I forgot to look to see, because um, I know that they were pregnant in the shooting of this, so I forgot to look for that this episode. Um, I haven't even noticed, so good job on the costume department there. Technical aspects. <laughs> Excellent costume. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, moving on to overall impressions and final thoughts. Do you have any other if you want to really put a pen in this how would you sum up the episode Mm, i would say you know it was really good i i did like the fact that we really went into the characters a little bit more we like had a little bit more push on their 
their reasonings behind things. Again, Melody and Haig scene, um, Lavinia and Lucy's scene was, was really well done, uh, this episode. So I think we did have a good, good episode compared to last episode. Think things are moving along smoothly and it wasn't the best, but it was, you can see that there's more focus this time. There's a little, it was a lot less action this time as well, too. And I remember that was my problem with episode seven. I felt that there was a lot more action and not enough story where this episode, we got a lot of story from almost every character and even added the beggar king on top of it. So we, we got a lot more story um, from everyone and, and now we can push it more as the episodes go on and really see what's going to happen. I mean, relationship wise, we had Penance and Augie got their scene and then Horatio and Amalia got their scene. And then, <laughs> and then we also get like Molody got to have her revenge with Haig, you know, Lord Mason, we got to see his history a little bit more and now what he's going to do. And what he's willing to do to, you know, get the touch in order. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we're moving along pretty steadily when it comes to this episode. Yeah, I would pretty much agree across the board there. Like, this was definitely a step up from episode seven. Not 100% sure it was enough of a step up. As we've mentioned a few times so far in the, you know, the past of uh, this episode, it does feel like there are a few... While there were some good character development moments, a lot of them did feel a little bit like things that have already been developed in the past that we're kind of retreading the ground of. And like when you've only got six episodes to work with, you need to make the most of every second. And it really felt like they... These past two episodes, they've not been making the most of the time they have. This episode, at least, we had a lot of really great character moments, which is good. Big thumbs up. There were some good things done. But moving forward, like, I don't want to, I'm loath to use the word efficiency because that feels too mechanical. But they need to use the time wisely. Yeah. Like, I feel like if we're really going to go into Hugo's character, we, then we're going to have to push it from like here episode yes. on. Because at this point, he's kind of just been doing this whole Freeman thing for the last like 10 episodes now. And it hasn't really progressed past getting more members of the club. I mean, I guess his moment in this episode kind of was important in that when Lord Mason was asking his roundtable to really start gathering up the touch, then they were like, ooh, maybe not. Because we know for a yeah. fact that there are some people on that table who also are part of the Fryman Club. So yeah. they definitely didn't want that to happen. So I could understand his coming in in this episode and talking about the Frymans for that reasoning alone. But other than that, he has no real character push that like every time he comes on scene or we talk about his father, we talk about like his club. I'm just like, okay, moving on. What are we doing with what we know about him so far? Mundy, I think we are moving character wise now that he has a, a, a task given by Lucy. So I think we'll see how that goes. Don't know, but everyone else, Lord Mason, Amalia, even Augie a little bit was kind of like still in the same boat that we we've left them in for the last couple of episodes, if not regressing a couple steps. 
Amalia has definitely regressed. I feel like if they're going to do this and do this properly, what they need to do now is, for lack of a better phrase, lay down some battle lines. But all right, this is one plot. Like the whatever the hell, like the Galanthi. Yeah. That is going to involve strongly Amalia, Penance, Malady, Lavinia, and Hague. And Lavinia and Lucy. They are like they are Team Galanthi. They're off doing Galanthi things. They can Galanthi all over the situation. Yeah, over there. Hugo, possible succession story. Uh-huh. Tie him in with Masson, with the Beggar King, with Mundy. That's their plot. Push. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to think who else is left. <laughs> Everyone else. The orphanage story itself, there. like Myrtle's yeah, like, story. The rest of the orphanage, looking after the Galanthi. Raising that, I don't know, some some shit with that. Like, yeah. fixing freaking London. So if they're really going to go into, like, Myrtle's story, the orphanage. Yeah, Myrtle did come in a couple times this episode with her her own PTSD. So, I think I think after her talk with with Cousins, then, I, I think her, her storyline on, on that end is, is pretty much over. Because I feel like she's kind of taken in what he said and, and is going to... Not necessarily get over it, but like grow from from what's happened. I don't think that they're gonna push her a lot more in the show from like what we got the first episode in this episode because I feel like that would be a waste a little bit if we don't have enough time to really push her arc because we went into the whole parental theme of episode seven and she was the baby of that episode. But now that we have an actual baby of the Galanthi, <laughs> we kind of like push her aside. Like her, her purpose was done and now we move on. Well, I'm wondering again, four episodes, but it could be an interesting take and wouldn't really require a lot of time to have kind of uh, Myrtle, Cousins, uh, Kieran, Sonia Sawar's character, who I'm blanking on the name of, all of those people, the ones that basically haven't really done anything, possibly tie Bonfire Annie in with that, and just do kind of a those that are left behind type plots. Like, yeah, we're not changing the world, we're not, you know, saving alien lives. Yeah. We're just trying to kind of survive, survive tangential well tangentially connected to these people that are so focused on the upper end they have no idea about the repercussions that always fall back on the lower ends they could be like kind of how how you survive when your siblings are being dickheads and you're getting the flag for it like it would be quite interesting to they, that they're dealing with the rise of bon annie as like the new leader and like the sensible one and then possibly uh, Myrtle's like her second in command. Yeah. Cousins healing them all up, dealing with the blowback from everyone else being nonsense. Like that could be quite a strong. I mean, we story, don't just like a we didn't actually of normality. See, we didn't actually see what happened to the orphanage in that big like earthquake scene. So if something actually does happen to the orphanage or it's like taken down and they can't stay anymore, that is going to shift everyone there's story mm. so it's it's going to be and if they lose anybody like if anyone dies because of that like that's going to Ooh. be an even an even bigger thing and something that either myrtle or bonfire any is going to have to deal with and you know somebody is going to say well molly should have been here when this happened and 
and how that how that works and then there was that scene moment when like Myrtle's walking out and she looks at Amalia and they look just look at each other and they walk away so I feel like Myrtle's kind of like shedding her her idleness of Amalia a little bit more so if something really does hit the orphanage and they have to go into this this growth of like we are the people that are left behind when all the big stuff are happening. Yeah. What's going to happen to us now? That will be, has to be acknowledged now that the orphanage is messed up or something. Something do, do kind of in a similar vein, but stretched over a couple of episodes. You remember uh, the Zeppo in Buffy, the, the Xander folks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that, where like there's some kind of trouble. I mean, we've, we've got all those. The, the purists or whatever they're oh, called yeah. that are starting to kick off like a little subplot where Annie is the leader with Myrtle as her second yeah. have to defend what's left of the orphanage from like constant attacks from the purists like it's not world changing apocalyptic drama but it's like more kind of what real people have to do and there really real people with powers facing an uprising of pure but you know you get the point I mean they do have to they, work they in could, that they story. could tell a good story there. they do they do have to work that story in because I feel like the fact that the purists this episode had their own little um, symbol like the P with like the V's yeah. in it I think that that was very important that like they're they're growing in, in power to the point that they have a symbol for themselves and it's we've moved on from like the purple ribbon now it's like a full-on thing. So I think that that will be something that we 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 acknowledge and we'll have to deal with story-wise. I mean, if you want to look at history and compare it to the Nevers, yeah. there are a lot of connections going on here right now that... Um, yeah. Exactly. Like, so it, it'll be interesting to see. And, and I think if Myrtle and Bonfire Annie and everyone else in the orphanage is the one that's dealing with that then I, it'll be an interesting story take. It'll be a lot, but it'll be an interesting story take. I'd watch it. I'd watch it too. Okay, do you have a favorite quote or moment from the episode? Um, I think my favorite quote from the episode, again, uh, to bring up uh, Malady and Higgs <laughs> moment, uh, when he's he's digging and he's like, trembling and asking like what do you want from me am i is, am i digging my grave like he's like kind of just breaking down at that moment and then Molly comes down and she's just like look at you you had me for two years mentally powerless struggling and i have you for two minutes and you're already begging for death beg for death and i loved that scene and, and those quotes between the two of them i thought it was fabulous that was probably my favorite moment what about you Actually, yeah, I was I was gonna say the uh, the phone line bit, but actually, yeah, you know, that was that was a great freaking quote. Maddie's got some absolute banging quotes. So yeah, she's my favorite I character. Would... I love her so much. I, that's why I was really mad we didn't see enough of her in the first episode because she's such an important character. That the fact that we didn't get her in the first episode was insane to me. So the fact that we got her a lot more in this episode, I was very happy with. They definitely made up for it this episode. It was a very Malady heavy episode. Yeah, yeah. Any other final thoughts or concerns you'd like to share about the four episodes remaining? <laughs> um, let me see. Let me see. Final thoughts. I do like the fact that we we went into like the parallels of you know what happened three years ago 
to like when everyone really did come in to like their troubledness and their power to like right now. And I think the scene with Amalia and Horatio really went into that a little bit. Um, like with their, when they were talking about the relationship, like the relationship to three years ago to now. And then even Haig and, and Malady went into it when Malady is like, our relationship three years ago is not the same to who I am now. Um, so it's like no longer Sarah, it's Malady. And Amalia is just like, I'm still me. And Horatio's like, but I love you. And so I, I, I do like that we, we had like those moments of acknowledging that there has been a shift over the last three years. Um, and I, I, I hope it, I don't know, wraps things up a little bit nicely. Again, it might put into our theory if we are seeing more flashbacks of regular Amalia instead of Zephyr, that maybe it is Zephyr that's going to disappear and Amalia will stay. Um, but who knows? But those are, those are the good times of this episode. I think it was better than episode seven. Uh, so that makes me to get over but yeah i would agree (laughs) exactly so it it makes me very excited to think that maybe episode nine and episode 10 are going to be better or like leading into the finale i'm still scared that we're gonna get like a game of thrones ending but fingers crossed um pretty pretty good episode so far Um, i think i've uh aired my concerns quite (laughs) adequately and repeatedly over the past hour or so so i'm not gonna belabor the point four episodes but um yeah i mean I, I agree it was it was definitely an improvement but yeah i don't know it's, it's not really connecting with me the way i really wanted it to like i mean i was i was in for this show yeah and just I mean, the fact that i couldn't even be bothered to rewatch it it's like yeah like i said I'd, I, I'd rather play mass effect for the fifth time yeah than watch the episode again like i said i I really do think it's the fact that one a lot of people didn't have access to it as easily as as before so to even try to want to rewatch it and 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 all that stuff it's a lot harder but also you know it's the it wasn't promoted as enough it kind of like the hype of it's kind of down as much and if it really is the, if it uh, truly is the final, final six, and then you can't really fix any of the issues that you have. So it's like, there's nothing really to look forward to, even if it like has like a good ending, you can't be like, well, we could fix this. And these are the storylines and theories that we could go off of and make it better. You're kind of, you're kind of left with an end. But some strong performances. So let's just enjoy them. Exactly. Exactly. I'll take any chance to see, any of the actors that we got to meet in this Indeed. show anywhere else. So if you want to hear more of us complaining about four episodes, please come back next time. You can find us on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Amazon music, and YouTube. If you wish to contact us on the socials, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HBO, the nevers and on Twitter at the nevers podcast. P O D C S T. Comments or questions to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please remember to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Thank you, Tanisha, for joining me tonight. You're uh, welcome. Would you like to share your contact details or your socials, rather? Yeah, you can find me at Show Talk Podcast on any of my socials. I'm on Apple Music, Spotify, all the things. And if you ever want to send an email, you can always do it at Show Talk podcast at gmail.com and I will answer you there. It's been a pleasure and we'll see you all 
in a while for more Never's Talk. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. 